RWJ Barnabas Health Telemed offers you two convenient ways to see a doctor anytime, anywhere, without having to come in for an appointment. If you're in need of urgent care, you can use our app to connect with a provider 24-7, right on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. Or you can use our website to schedule a virtual visit with an RWJ Barnabas Health Medical Group provider or specialist. And you can even register as a new patient. Book an appointment online at rwjbh.org slash telemed. Your safety has always been our top priority, and we've taken every precaution. So don't delay your care any longer. Get started today at rwjbh.org slash telemed. RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together. Well, it is Monday, so that means it's another edition of the Speak of the Devils podcast presented by RWJ Barnabas Health. I'm Catherine Bogart, and joining me on today's episode is Sam Kassan from NewJerseyDevils.com. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Who are we speaking to today? Well, we have Brian McBride today, uh, CEO of Burst, and really an incredible story he has growing up as a person of color, a black man, uh, played hockey in Sault Ste. Marie, went to Trinity College. Uh, even West Point had a quick stop in West Point, and really he's he's branched out into in the NHL. At one point, he was the uh, VP of Business Development and started a NHL diversity ambassador. One of the first hires he made was in 1996. He brought on Willie O'Ree, of course, the first African American player in the National Hockey League, and then from there he's gone on to other endeavors and other entrepreneurial ships. But one of the things he really put together was a push to get Willie O'Ree in the Hall of Fame. Uh, he, he met with a couple of people and realized way back in 2008 that why is he not in the hall of fame? Like this doesn't make any sense. So they made a push to get a documentary to tell Willie Reed's story. Of course, Willie Reed now is in the hockey hall of fame, but because of that, because of that push to get him in, develop this documentary that tells the story of Willie Reed. And as he'll discuss, it's about Willie Reed, but it's also about people of color, about society. It touches on a lot of things. It was a story of one man, but really encapsulates really an entire the entire story of really a country, a culture, and the generations. And sports, you know, we hear it, stick to sports or sports are not political. Sports don't necessarily have to be political, but a lot of history has happened in sports. And it's it branches out more than just what happens on the field, especially when you have someone like Willie O'Ree, who's the first black player in the NHL. That's a history moment. So it's very important that Willie's story was told by Bryant and his very amazing team that he talks about. But let's get into this conversation. It's so important. And he actually even schools us with some history questions. So we'll see if the listeners know the answers to what Brian asked, but here he is. Brian, thank you for being here with Sam and I today. Great to be here. Thank you guys for the invitation. I'm uh, really excited to uh, spend some time. We are so excited to have you on because not only have you been so involved with the sport of hockey, you're also a storyteller like Sam and I. So there's so many avenues we want to cover in this hour. But let's start with why did you start loving hockey? When did you start loving hockey? And where did your journey with the sport begin? Well, um, born in Chicago, but um, moved when I was four or five years old to Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, Canada. And, you know, it's, I don't know if you know anything about the Sioux, but uh, as they call it in Northern Ontario, um, most small Canadian towns 
there's outside of Flin Flon, Manitoba, there's a statue of Bob or a, a billboard of Bobby of Bobby Clark, Perry Sound, Bobby Orr, right? Outside of Sault Ste. Marie in my hometown, there's a billboard with about 70 names on it. I'm not kidding. And there's room for a lot more, right? It's Gretzky and uh, the Esposito brothers and Jerry Korab and Tico Mackey. You just, the names are just forever. And um, so it's in the water there. They don't let you leave unless you can play hockey. So at five, I started late at five in Sault Ste. Marie. And uh, it's also in the contracts of all the janitors, uh, custodians in our public school system that they must maintain an ice rink behind every school. It's not kidding you. And so you just, it's part of gym class. It's part of everything. So, you know, I just saw all of this activity amongst all these friends that were playing hockey and got bit really early at five years old and loved it. And, and I've been playing hockey. I've been involved for, you know, more than 50 years. I hear that you used to skate down the street for dinner and then skate back. Yeah. What were some of your fondest memories of yeah, that, playing hockey? <laughs> well, it's, I guess it also speaks to, you know, to global warming and climate change, right? I don't know if you can do that anymore, but no, seriously, I'd get on that rink, um, you know, at 3.30 with all the other kids after school. We'd play literally for two to three hours. My parents would make me come home for dinner. I would skate home from that rink on the roads with Ron Francis and a whole bunch of other people that I grew up with. I grew up with Ronnie Francis, you know, and, and we'd skate home on the roads. My parents would put newspaper and magazines down in the house and I'd keep my skates on and I'd walk to the dinner table on my skates, eat in like eight seconds. They'd make me sit there to digest my food, walk back out, skate back home, on, skate back on the roads to the rink, play for another two to three hours and, and then go home and go to bed. But yeah, we uh, we used to literally skate on the roads. It was a lot of fun. That's quite impressive. And then you went on to play college hockey as well. So where did your hockey career go after you were growing up playing in the Sioux and then you moved on to college and professional life afterwards? Yeah, um, well, I, I grew up in the Sioux and um, I was a U.S. born Canadian trained hockey player. So um, the scouts at, at West Point saw me in a, in a junior tournament. And so I, I was recruited by West Point and amongst other places, but I was really taken by um, the chance to go to the United States Military Academy. It was a huge honor. I got nominated by then Vice President Bush, one. I was one of his foreign policy mistakes. And um, so, yeah, so he, he nominated me. And when I got the nomination, I became really serious about it. And the coaches were really fired up to have me. And um and so I, I went to West Point. Um, I didn't. I didn't graduate. I went to Trinity College. I didn't want to be in the army. Um, I, I, I've not gone a month without talking to one of my classmates from West Point in more than thirty years, which is crazy. The bond is so deep with all of those guys. Um, but but I loved it, and I just. I'm an I didn't know it at the time, but I'm an entrepreneur and I love to build things. That was really hard when you're in the army. So, so that looking back on it, you know, you always get clarity, 2020 hindsight, but, um, but no, but hockey paved the way for me to do that at West Point. And then I transferred to Trinity college in Hartford, Connecticut. And we lucky enough to land with a great bunch of guys. We were right place, right time. We won three championships there and then um, went to graduate school right afterwards in Boston and then, um, and then worked in real estate and finance, hated it. 
um, and said, I got to figure out a way to get in. On my honeymoon, my wife and I are in Bali and I read Ken Dryden's Home Game. Great book if you've never read it. I mean, amazing. Ken Dryden's an, an incredible writer. Um, so I read Home Game and I was, and I turned to my new wife of a week. We've been married 27 years now, but we were a week into our marriage on our honeymoon and I turned to her and I said, uh, I have to go to work for the NHL. She goes, what does that mean? <laughs> and so within two months after our honeymoon, I met Gary Bettman and uh, I became his seventh hire. So it was uh, it was a kind of a funny route and circuitous route, but, you know, ended up working in hockey and I still do and love every minute of it. I'm curious, you said you met Gary Bettman and became the seventh hire. How do you even go about meeting a Gary Bettman? Because obviously a lot of people want to work in hockey, but not everyone can just meet Gary Bettman like that. How were you able to put that kind of together? And then once you got involved in the NHL, where did your role kind of evolve from there? Sure, sure. Um, um, this is all pre-Google, right? So it wasn't easy. It wasn't simple. This is, But it's funny. It's such a hockey, such a good hockey story. I was playing pickup hockey outside of Detroit with a friend of mine who worked for the Tigers. And I knew that Mr. Illich, who owned the Tigers, also owned the Red Wings. So we started talking in the locker room, and he was like, you got to apply. Yeah, he's a new commissioner. You got to figure this out. You got to get to him. And I said, well, you, you know the Illiches. Do you know anyone at the league? He goes, yeah, I know a couple of people. So he networked his way to, to introducing me to, to Gary. And I got in front of Gary and um, got in front of Gary and sang and danced and said, listen, I – I know that I can help you grow this sport in a, in a different way. And I think that's what caught his attention, that I was lucky enough to go to good schools. I was a player. I, you know, I knew the game. And I still, you know, I knew it then. I know it now. And so he saw that I was, uh, I could do some unique things, I think. And, I'm, and he's still, Gary's still a mentor and friend and uh, just a you know, great leader for the game. He gets a lot of grief, but um, what he's done for, for hockey is it's irrefutable. He's just done an unbelievable job. When you look at how hockey has changed, especially in the NHL, from when you were working with the league until now, what are some of the biggest changes you've seen in this sport, especially with it growing? It's a great question. You know, I, I all kinds of things. I mean, I, I'm looking back at kind of the highlights, and I've been gone now for 20 years in an official capacity at the NHL, but still partnering. I've partnered on the Willie movie and partnered on a whole bunch of different things, all about through the lens, I should say of how do we make the game more diverse? How do we make it more accepting, more belonging, more women, more, um, you know, more BIPOC participation, more AAPI participation, big tent, big eye inclusion. That's what I care about. I care about a whole bunch of things in hockey, but that's the one that really drives me. And to see it grow, um, to see it grow in this, in a way that it has, when I got to the league, and Willie and I started, Willie O'Ree and I started working together. There were three players of color, right? Um, Bryce Salvador, of, of, you know, obviously of Devils fame and third black captain ever um, was one of them. Mike Greer, Anson Carter, right? That number is now almost 40, but it's taken too long. We've got to accelerate that. We have to speed that up, right? And And, and that's just one benchmark. That's just one data point, number of diverse people in the NHL. What it's really about, I think, is filling that funnel so that all kids get the opportunity to play. That's really what it's about. I make the argument 
all the time to people of friends of color, I say to them, you know, hockey is most important sport for, for, for marginalized people to play. And well, what, what do you mean? You're not welcome there. You know, I get all kinds of pushback. I said, because as a dad, if I could only give my kids one thing, it would be resilience, the ability to get back up, right? No matter what, when you step out on the ice as a four, five, 10, 15 year old, whatever, skates are a great equalizer. Nobody's born with skates on. And the first thing that you do is you fall on your butt. And the first thing you learn is to get back up. And that's a muscle, right? That's a muscle that can be applied in lots of different places. So to see the NHL and to see uh, the governing bodies really start to open their aperture to welcome all kinds of people, the growth of the women's game, um, growth of special hockey, um, you know, just to be opening up in a way that will grow the game is, is incredibly satisfying, but we've got so much more work to do. By the year 2044, the majority of people in this country will, be, will identify as non-white will be visible minorities. So if we don't do this work, we've got big problems ahead. And one man, you mentioned him, who has really helped with that start in the sport of hockey, in addition to yourself, is Willie O'Ree. And you were one of the co-producers of Willie. And that's a documentary that had huge impacts. Not only did it show representation and and tell the story of one of the, actually the first black hockey player in the NHL, you also helped with the curriculum to teach in schools to help spread the message of Willie and what he did. When did you get involved with that project and how were you able to make it such an impactful piece of hockey history, able to spread all across the country and all across the world for people to understand Willie and his story? Well, my, um, my first interaction with Willie O'Ree, years before I got to meet him, I was 10 years old. And I wanted to be the first black player in the NHL, <laughs> but I, I saw him in the library and I was angry. I was like, ah, this guy beat me to it. Right. So I was angry with Willie from the age of 10 to 12, <laughs> but I got past it. When I got to the NHL, um, when I got to the NHL, I found him and this is part of the film and, and through a friend at the FBI, we tracked him down and, and I went to meet him. And Willie was working as security guard in San Diego and everyone had forgotten about him. And I, it blew my mind that people had forgotten about him, especially because when I met him, I'll never forget standing in his office. And in the film, you can see this, there's this huge framed plaque, beautiful. And I knew what it was when I saw it. It was, it was the order of Canada. Only like 120 people had ever been given to it. It had been given this award. And there it was. I was like, oh, my God. Right. This guy's important. Right next to it were two plaques where he was employee of the year at the hotel that he worked at. That's how earnest and humble and gracious he is. So I was immediately like, oh, my God, I have to work with this guy. He's, you know, he's not bitter. He's not angry. He, he, you know, he, most money he ever made playing pro hockey was $17,000. Right. And he didn't let that deter him, didn't stop him. He just found a way. And and that just really, really spoke volumes to me as to who he was. And frankly, that um, 
everyone needed to know this guy. Everyone needed to know who he was because of the way he carried himself. And just you talk to anyone in hockey and they're like, oh, well, he's one of my greatest friends. He's got he's got literally 250,000 best friends. You go into one of the hardest things I've ever had to do is to go to a rink. uh, And like I've come to the Prudential Center with Willie. It takes literally a whole period to get from the entry to his to the box or to his seats because every Willie remember me it's unbelievable he's like a rock star at, at eighty five so um, so we needed a way to make that scale right we can't be everywhere people can't be everywhere so film scales right so we I'd never made a film before but we set we set about with intent to make a social justice film disguised as a hockey movie. We wanted to, we wanted people to learn, and really it was three tenets, teach, heal, humanize, right? So we knew we got it right when, and it wasn't political in any way, shape, or form. We made sure it wasn't. On both ends of the political spectrum, people said, what a great man. That's when I knew we got it right. And Laurence Matthew Legere, the director and co-producer, she did an amazing job. I mean, off the charts. And I think it's a, it's a, I, and I'm too close to it, but I think it's a really poignant, important film because it was made by women, frankly. It wasn't about, oh, this is how many points he had, and this is where he played junior. We, that got woven in. But what she did was she humanized, and she said, hey, this is what happened to this guy, and this is what's happening to these young women who are playing, women of color who are playing now, right? So it really hit people as to, wow, this is still going on. When's this going to stop? Right. Everybody deserves an opportunity. Everybody deserves a chance. And that's what we tried to capture in the film. And hopefully we we did some of that. Yeah. And you spoke about representation and how important it is. But for you to be able to help show the representation on a personal level, what did working on the Willie documentary mean to you? Oh, wow. It was life changing. It really was. Um, You know, I, I sit here as a person who's received as many or more opportunities than anyone alive. I'm not kidding. I I was in the first Head Start class ever. My mom put me in that when I was five years old, learned how to read when I was four and five, right? So it just sent me on a trajectory that went to good schools and all that stuff. It just put me on that path. So I I had this great, great, great run. I was at the NHL. I still, you know, I've had great jobs and I've built businesses and sold businesses and, and, you know, done well and all of that. But I hadn't really dug in in terms of, of, of all of the elements, the kind of 360 purview of, you know, of being black, of being a person of color, of being a marginalized person in this, and shamefully, frankly, in this, in, you know, in, in the United States and in North America, um, because I'd been given all these opportunities and all these doors were opened as a result of, you know, I, I came right after MLK and, you know, all the 60s and civil rights. So I benefited from all of that. And it was amazing. And it, and it still is amazing. And it's a great run. That said, what this film made me do was it made me kind of take my aperture from here to here. And I read The Warmth of Other Sons by Isabel Wilkerson. I read Cast by Isabel Wilkerson, Richard Rothstein's The Color of Law, Brian Stevenson's um, Just Mercy, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. So I did a deep dive into all the things, frankly, that were not taught at any time in our lives, right? You know, uh, one of the things that always jumped out at me, get a little serious for a second here, 
is, do you know what the greatest welfare program in the history of the United States is? Any idea? I would guess social security. A lot of people guess social security. Yeah. When you say welfare, because of the tropes and the stereotypes, it triggers a black woman with children, right? Which is evil. But that's kind of how we've all been conditioned. We have to uncondition ourselves and unlearn some of these things. The greatest program, the greatest welfare program in, in the history of the United States is the GI Bill. You go to war, you face bullets, you win, you get rewards. It's very Roman, right? And um, so, so, you know, what it meant was that you get back from World War II and you're a GI, you get a choice between free housing or education, wealth creation, generational wealth creation unless you were black and you got neither. You can point a direct line from that legislation to the disparity in white versus black household income today of eight to one today, right? I mean, and they're hard, it's hard stuff to talk about. It's not simple. The hardest thing for me to, to realize that I didn't realize prior to this film, I knew, and we all kind of, we know about it, but we don't. Here's the hard facts. Facts, irrefutable, between 1870 and 1945 in this country, there was a person of color hung every three days. That's just a fact. We don't talk about it. We don't like to talk about it. It's not fun. It's not easy. It's, you know, it's difficult material, but it's the truth. And they weren't all black, by the way. A lot of them were Asian. A lot of them were just, you know, people that were different, that were marginalized. And often what marginalized meant is that you were excluded. And if you didn't stay in your place, you paid for it. So those are some of the things I learned in this process in making this film. Because I had to really dig in and do the research. And it, and it just really um, it moved me to a point where I'll never stop doing this work now. It's incredibly powerful. And I was reading about your current company, Burst, that you are the CEO and founder of. And one of your biggest mission statements right now is amplifying voices that have not had the opportunities to be heard in mainstream media. And like you said, it's hard to have these conversations, but at the same time, it's so important because it's, we all need to be able to understand each other. And I, I saw, sorry, go ahead. Oh, and I was just going to say, you have this mission with Burst to help these people be able to share their stories and talk about the hard subjects and really bring light to these stories that someone might not know. So how are you making sure that you're being able to help share that history and continue that hard work that you were just talking about? Yeah, we, again, it's, it's the film really opened our eyes in terms of scale. We, we got Willie to 120 million US TV households in the last two years, right? It's being introduced as curriculum in a whole bunch of school districts. You know, I, I love to say in that formula of teach, heal, humanize, my wife is brilliant at a lot of things. She's got a special knack and a special gift for making vegetables taste good. <laughs> so, so that's the formula. Make the vegetables taste good, right? I saw a bumper sticker that said the most rad- recently, the, the most radical thing we can do is introduce, introduce ourselves to each other. Yep. When people see fathers and mothers and aunts and uncles and nieces, and they don't see... You know, they, they don't see others. They don't see them. They don't see those people. So what we're trying to do at Burst is to fill the holes in the American narrative. There are all these amazing stories, incredible stories that we just don't know about, right? Tulsa, 
became mainstream a month ago. That's crazy, right? That's on the 100th anniversary. One other question for you, another skill testing question. Any idea who Joseph, excuse me, who um, Julius Rosenwald is? No. But we're the ones supposed to be asking the questions well, this, this here, is Brian. Important. I know, I know, but, I, but I'm, I'm taking liberties here. I'm taking liberties. Um, no, go for it. Share this info with us. Yeah, because it's important, and, and it blew me away when I found out, frankly, right? I'm lucky enough to go to some good schools, and I didn't know this. Nobody, I mean, it's crazy. This is the flip side of Tulsa to the positive. That was hard and, you know, really tough stuff to hear and listen and learn. This is the opposite. Julius Rosenwald, and it's so timely, he... He is the Jeff Bezos of his day. He helped create Sears Roebuck with a few of his friends. And what he did with his, gets crazier. What he did with his fortune, he got together with Booker T. Washington in 1912. And over the next 42 years, they created 5,000 schools and they taught black America how to read. He taught Maya Angelou how to read. He taught John Lewis how to read, right? Like they changed America. They increased the black literacy rate from 1912 to 1954 by 4X and changed the world. All those entertainers, all of those athletes, all of those people who became firsts, he taught a lot of them how to read and nobody knows who he is. Because and nobody knows about this. Very few people know about this effort because it was a white Jewish guy and a black guy working really closely together to make America better. That story needs to be told and heard. And it has been in certain places, but it needs broad distribution. It needs scale. So that's what we're after. That's what we're looking to do is to, through user-generated content, which is what Burst focuses on, is to get those great stories. We're closely with um, about 40 museums around the country. One of them is the African American Museum in um, at Smithsonian, who we're, we're working on a deal with now, where people can submit those stories and fill in those holes and those gaps in the American narrative and, and, and do the work, right? Everyone talks about, oh, we have to do the work now. This is the work. Tell those stories and share them at scale. That's what we're trying to do. When you look at hockey and over the past two years, we've really seen athletes across all sports be able to start talking about their lives as more than just a professional athlete. They're talking about social justice. They're talking about what they've experienced in their lives. And you see these athletes feeling more empowered. How much have you seen sports change, especially hockey? And how will that benefit seeing these athletes be able to talk, whether it's, you know, PK Subban on the Devils talks a lot about the work he does in the community and really reaches out. How impactful is an athlete like that to the sport of hockey and its growth? It's critical. And, and I mean, I, I, I cannot um, compliment today's players more than um, I just can't say enough what finding their voices and um, the way they speak to these issues where they speak truth with clarity to these issues is incredible. It just means that they're going to move. They're going to move the debate that much faster. Um, the one cohort, this is an interesting statistic. The one cohort of white people in this country who feel as though corporations have a, have a moral responsibility to weigh in on social justice are 18 to 35-year-olds. It just happens to overlap with the age of pro athletes. So they're speaking for their generation is really what they're doing. And they're saying enough. 
You know, the, the old adage that Republicans buy sneakers too, very famous athlete once said that. They're like, you know, and I'm not picking on Republicans and, and a lot of them just happen to be on that side of the aisle, but they're just saying, you know what, this is unfair. This is not right that my, you know, my teammate, she is equally as important as anybody else, you know, and she needs to be heard or they need to be heard, right? The, the, the emphasis on inclusion and being a great teammate, it's inbred in us when we play team sports. The fact that today's athlete is taking that outside of the locker room, outside of the stadium and, and spreading that ethos of, you know, inclusivity and belonging is, it will, it may not yield results for another 10 years, but it's coming. You mentioned that you wanted to be the first black player and you held a grudge against Willie O'Ree for quite some time, but <laughs> you're, you're discussing now about inclusion. So I'm curious, what was your experience like when you were young growing up? I don't know if you were the only person of color in a lot of your teams or if there were other teammates or how you were treated, yeah. but what was kind of your lived experience like? I never had a teammate of color. Ever. In my whole hockey career. Amazing. And that really bothered me. That really bothered me. I was like, geez, you know, and, and I had to, I, I mean, I, I grew up in white spaces in Canada, right? And I learned how to navigate those spaces. That's, I had to. I had no choice. I didn't even think about it. It was just Tuesday, right? That's what I have to do to get what I want to, where I want to go and what I want to do. So I had to figure that out. But as I got a little older and I went, holy smokes, you know, this is crazy. How are not other people of color getting an opportunity to do this it means so much to me and it's meant so much to my family and my parents and you know we I was you know a couple of years behind Ron Francis and Sault Ste. Marie and watched these amazing players you know all those players are on that billboard and um and I said you know everybody deserves a chance to to achieve that and to be part of that and the fact that that door is closed right now is wrong and I need to do something so that that fire that you know, I I I I've nurtured and I have over many years. I've had over many years was really that seed was planted then, and um and it, it's something I'm always going to work on. And speaking of planting that seed and working on, I watched one of your lectures, and one of the things you kept pushing was have purpose, have purpose. You're talking to some students, and, and do you kind of see this as your purpose, your kind of goal and driving force in life, or one of them? Yeah, I mean for sure. I mean. It's become, it's moved up my my priority list for sure, right? As a result of the film and as a result of George Floyd and kind of looking around and going, holy smokes. And I heard it put really, really well by a friend recently when they said, you know, this is the fourth black renaissance. Post-Civil War, 1865 to 70, tons of black elected officials all over the United States until that was put down. The 1920s, Langston Hughes, you know, uh, Harlem Renaissance, artistic explosion, 1960s, civil rights, amazing, right? MLK, Malcolm X, you know, just everything that happened, it moved towards progress. Here we are. Big canvas, lots of paint. What are we going to do with it? I think you kind of made a point when you were making the film, you said you went from here to here where your eyes were open a little bit. Do you think last summer was kind of a, a wake up call where all of America might have been here, but now we're seeing the reality of what's happening? You know, it, 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 it's, a great, it's a great way to put it. That's exactly right, right? And it, it, was, it, was, it was visual, right? I see I, those books that I mentioned earlier, 
the thing, the thread that runs through all those books is they're irrefutable. They're not opinion pieces. This is what happened, right? And it was hard history, not history we're proud of, but as a country, we have to have the guts to do what Rwanda, Canada, who has its own issues, um, South Africa and Germany, we made Germany do this. We have to reckon with our past, right? Home of the free, land of the brave, you know, equal justice for all. Oh yeah, slavery, three fifths of a person. We've never reconciled it to the point where we had a bunch of people running around with Confederate flags or some people in the seat of power on January 6th. Like we still haven't reckoned with it, guys. So let's have the guts to reckon with it and really confront it so that we, if you don't know where you're from, you don't know where you're going. Right. And in my, in our little microcosm in hockey, right, we're talking macro here, but in our little piece of the world, we can do something about that. I'm at, I'm today, I'm, I'm here at the Prudential Center with all these amazing kids from Hockey, New Jersey, and they're Keith Valtry and, you know, Kevin Fox. I mean, they're, they're doing it, right? That's where the rubber meets the road is people who are doing, I'm waxing poetic and talking and yapping and stuff. These guys are out there on the ice, make, you know, helping kids play. I mean, it's that's what it does. And it, and it, it instills in them a fire that they're going to bring their, they're going to bring their brothers and sisters and teammates and friends and, and their own kids someday into the fold and, and the whole sport will change. So it's, um, it's, a, it's, it's long game. we got to keep, you know, kind of one, one, one foot in front of the other and doing this. But the key I think is to ensure that systemically the sport is welcoming and it embraces everyone and gives everyone opportunity. That that's when we'll make progress, I think. And you mentioned hockey in New Jersey. It's a program that two local educators in Newark started back in 2003, and they have partnered with the Devils now, and the Devils are very happy to be a part of it. And what's so empowering about them is everything is free. And they were based out of Newark. They started in Newark. Now they're in a lot of northern New Jersey, but everything is free. The ice time, the equipment, the lessons, everything. And these players go on to learn a sport and it gives them, you know, stability. It gives them some sort of purpose and somewhere to go where they feel a part of a family with this team. So I want to turn this on you, though. Bryant, what has hockey given you throughout your life that you've seen it give to some of those players at Hockey in New Jersey? Exact same thing. Exact same thing, right? That that muscle, that muscle about falling down and getting back up, that resilience, right? That you, you have to find a way, right? And, and especially, I mean, in, I don't think there's any greater gift you can get a, give a kid of color is that, that knowledge and that muscle and that, that expertise in navigating and being resourceful and figuring it out no matter what, right? That's all you want as a parent. And, and that's what the sport gave me is that, okay, there's one puck, there's a bunch of us going in the corner and one person's coming out with it, <laughs> right? And you got to be that person coming out with it on a regular basis to give your, your team scoring opportunities or to prevent scoring opportunities. And it's very binary. If you don't come out with it, somebody else is, and they may be wearing a different color jersey and you got to figure that out, right? So practicing that day in, day out, learning how to be unselfish, learning how to win, learning how to lose, right? And be a good teammate and to pick yourself back up, dust yourself off. Okay. Tomorrow's another day or a goal is scored. Okay. 
like short memory, how do we get it back? Right? Like, where do we, where do we go from here? So that immediacy and that, that, that skill, that, 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 that's what it gave me. And I, and I see it every time that I'm, uh, that I'm with kids, especially kids of color on the ice is you learn how to compete and you learn how to, to figure it out. You know, I, I spent, as I mentioned, I spent some time at West Point and for the whole first year, you're allowed to say four things. Yes, sir. No, sir. Sir, there's no excuse. And sir, I do not understand. That third one was just an echo of, of, of all the coaches, the hockey coaches that I've had over so many years. Hockey is such a powerful sport. And Bryant, you have told such important stories and continue with your company first. And we just want to say thank you so much for sharing not only some of your knowledge with us, but also sharing your opinion and your expertise on how we can continue to grow this sport. We know that you are doing the work and with the education so strongly, especially with the Willie documentary. And we encourage anyone who hasn't seen it yet to go watch it. I believe it's still on Peacock to watch. Um, So go watch the Willie documentary about the first black player in the NHL on Peacock. Um, Bryant, thank you so much for joining Sam and I today for this conversation. Thank you guys so much for having me. You're doing great work. And uh, I look forward to uh, saying hello again. Congrats on the new house, honey. What's this? Carbon monoxide detectors? Yeah, but one on every level. Because you can't see or smell carbon monoxide. And when fuel-burning appliances aren't working right, CO can build up and be deadly. Guys, I'm on it. We just want to know you're safe. At PSENG, we're committed to your family's safety. Know how to prevent carbon monoxide poisoning. If your CO detector goes off, leave immediately. Then call 911. Protect the ones you love. Learn more at PSEG.com slash gas safety. Well, I think next time, Sam, we we were prepared for this interview, but I think next time we might have to include some American history in our preparation notes. But Bryant, luckily, is a great teacher and shared some knowledge with us today. I was going to say, I, I definitely prepared for Brian himself. I didn't prepare for uh, the American history of a lot of different <laughs> I, I will have to be more astute the next time we have him on the podcast and, and do some more reading and research. But an incredible conversation and someone that's just so easy to talk to because he'll teach you what you need to know and give you the ability to really learn from him. And I mean, I think that comes from being a storyteller and comes from being an entrepreneur and comes from the person that he is. So there's a great guy leading Bursi as the CEO, and he's hoping to, you know, spread and share some more stories and help connect us all. Because at the end of the day, stories just make us feel closer together and more unique, especially as one human body. So Sam, thank you for your very, very intellectual questions with Brian. We want to thank Brian so much for joining us on this episode of the Speak of the Devils podcast presented by RWJ Barnabas Health. For Sam Kassan, I'm Catherine Bogart. Thanks so much for listening. Be well, as our friend Matt McLaughlin always says. Bye.